We'll uh, be talking about more, and uh, for those of you uh, watching on live, you're in town, which would be great. Uh, uh, we want to say uh, V. Gates, uh, one of our uh, German friends, one of our partner churches in Deutschland and Germany is here with us, so we want to welcome this morning. Glad you're here, normally watching online. Uh, others. But the 8 o'clock service, the 10 o'clock and the 12, they're going to be identical. We're going to have the choir and the orchestra and the band and bagpipers and a special order of Krispy Kreme because it's Easter to celebrate together. So we want to come to that. I would encourage you to go to the 8 o'clock or the 12 o'clock because, and as you invite people, the 10 o'clock is probably where we'll get most of our visitors, particularly those of other faiths. So if you want to make a room for that. But it's going to be a great time. As we come along, we come to this uh, great statement of Jesus. I am the vine. You know, uh, vineyards, of course, is one of the favorite images that God uses in the Old Testament, the Tanakh, for explaining that Israel is the, vin- the vineyard and he is the vine care. And Jesus picks up on that theme. Of course, as uh, Presbyterians, people will ask me every time we have communion, if we have uh, grape juice, are we against alcohol? And no, we try to be sensitive to our alcoholics who do that. But Presbyterians against alcohol? No, I don't think so. But uh, <laughs> like the father wanted to know and his wife what their son was going to do. He just graduated from high school and they wanted to test him and they were worried about him. So the father said, I know, we're going to hide in the closet. When he comes home, we'll see how God leads. I'm going to put out a stack of $50 bills and a Bible and a bottle of wine. And his wife said, why are you doing that? He says, well, if he takes the money, it means he's going to be a great businessman. If he takes the Bible, he's going to go into the ministry. And God forbid he would take the wine. And so they hid. And all of a sudden, he came home with mom, dad, and they didn't answer. And dad's looking out. And the mother says, what's he doing? He says, wait. And the son went over. And he looked down. And he saw this stuff. And he picked up the money. The father went, he's going to be a businessman. The mother went, great. He says, no, wait. And then he went over and he looked at the Bible. And he said, wait, he's going to go to the ministry. And then he looked down at the wine and he put the money in the Bible, took the bottle of wine and walked to his room. Father went, oh, no. And the mother went, what? He said, he's going to become a Presbyterian minister. (laughs) Told to me by a Catholic priest friend of mine. But uh, (laughs) we find this picture of Jesus in the great I am statements of the Gospel of John. There has never been, but when Jesus walks the earth, a leader spiritually, a teacher, with the brilliance, the genius of Jesus. Nothing is compared since or before then on his moral teaching. And yet we see the problem with this blue-collar rabbi from Nazareth is he makes these audacious statements about himself. It's either the statements of a total egomaniac or it's living revelation. Jesus says, I am the way the truth and the life we saw. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. You come to me, you will never hunger. Jesus said, I am the light of life. You follow me and you will never walk in darkness. And this morning he's very much doing these wild claims, once again, about his self-perception when he says, I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. And what we find out is on this morning, In the year 33 A.D., when Jesus came riding in, and everybody came out to greet him. John, the Gospel of John tells us, because John writes after the others and he's filling in, it's because yesterday Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And and the crowd went out to meet him because they heard he had done this sign. And he knows exactly what he is doing. He is setting up. Why is he riding in a donkey in fulfillment of the prophecy you read of Zechariah? 
He is setting up a coronation for the king as he comes riding in. And his hated enemies knew exactly what he was doing. And the crowd was thrilled. Maybe the Messiah had come. And the crowd, the timing of Christ is perfect. I think God is bad at timing, and so do you. Have you ever noticed that in your life? Why do we have what we have? When we have, we go, Lord, come on, give me a break. And this morning in the same way. Why this morning in this way? Because Jesus is sifting. He is separating the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. He knows exactly what he is doing. When he comes riding in, everyone is thrilled. And on the outside, it would look like that they all agreed. But he's really showing this wild celebrating the difference between those being driven by hype and those being transformed by faith. Hype is the emotional buzz that you and I try to pump up into our life to get us going. Positive thinking. Faith is the response, which is a gift of God, to what God has already done. And on the outside, you can't tell the difference. Somebody of great hype and someone of great faith. But they're literally the difference between life and death. And when Jesus comes, he says, I am the faith. And we'll read in this passage, I am the vine. When you stay connected to me, you cannot not bear fruit. You can't stop it. It's not about you trying to be good boys and girls. It's about letting my life change you. If you've got your Bible, turn over, first of all, to the book of Isaiah and the 27th chapter, page 569 in your pew Bible. Isaiah, the great prophet of the 8th century B.C., writing, and he, again, God speaking through the prophet, uses this imagery of Israel being the vine. Now, he also uses this imagery of the other nations, Assyria and those, of being the Leviathan, like the dragon. The book of Revelation, Satan is referred to as the dragon. It's this imagery from here. If you're visiting, we read this together out loud as a sign of God's community. So let's read together the 27th chapter, verses 1 through 6 together, saying, On that day, the Lord with his cruel and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent, Leviathan the twisting serpent, and he will kill the dragon that is in the sea. On that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing about it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, I guard it night and day so that no one can harm it. I have no wrath. If it gives me thorns and briars, I will march to battle against it. I will burn it up. Or else let it cling to me for protection. Let it make peace with me. Let it make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Then if you turn to the New Testament, to the Gospel of John in the 15th chapter, page 878 in your pew Bible. And as you are turning eight centuries later, Jesus using this imagery, he is with his disciples in the upper room right before his horrific execution. And in verses 1 through 11, let's read together saying, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, He prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit. 
Because apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. That imagery that Jesus is using, he's referring back, you can see how he's teased that out of the Tanakh, the Old Testament. And what's interesting is, why does Jesus use this imagery? Well, because the vine, as you know, and if you've ever been around vineyards, the only thing a vineyard is good for is grapes. The wood that comes from vine, a grapevine is worthless. You can't use it for anything. And if you have it, a lot of this wild grapes are growing around, you're always pulling out, and that stuff gets tough. Even the most expensive vines up here in Sonoma and Napa, if they're not bearing fruit, you can't use them for anything. Jesus says, moi vine, you branches. You don't bear fruit. If you cut yourself from it, you can do zip, zilch, nada, nothing. And he's using this imagery of how you stay together. Every good vineyard knows the whole secret of having the best grapes is how you stress them and there's an art between stressing and they stress the living life out of these vines up there without harming them because the plant responds by making the sweetest fruit thinking it's in shock you and i the stress in our life is a deadly stress but god when we come in our the stress is not about trying to be like jesus that's why I don't like that, what would Jesus do? It's not about you and I trying to imitate Christ. No one can do that. What is Jesus doing is what we should be wearing around here. And he's, if we weren't so worried about our money, about our marriages, about our relationships, our friends, about our fame and our finances, if we weren't so worried about those things, 90% of the stress in our life, if we trusted him, would be gone. But there will come a time when God, the vine keeper, will stress us. And he's not stressing us to harm us. He's stressing us for the fruit. It's all about the fruit. And I know people that their lives, they are huge vines. They got lots of foliage. And they're dying. You don't bear fruit as a vine. You're the start of the dying process. Jesus says, I don't care how famous you are, the spin you give, the press releases you've convinced the world. I don't care who applauds you. You're not bearing the fruit I want. You are dead. You are a dead woman, a dead man walking. And the way you find life is by you attaching to me. And what's interesting is this is the setting that he'll say on Thursday night. But it's this morning that will change things. Now, last year we looked at John's side of that. But since we've been in the Gospel of John with these I am, turn with me over to Luke and to the 19th chapter. It's on page 854 in your pew Bible. Luke, as you know, wrote more words than any other writer in the New Testament in his two volumes. I'm told that Beethoven wrote more notes than Mozart. Mozart wrote ten times the amount of works. But as far as the actual notes, the longer is Beethoven. Paul writes more letters, but Luke 
thinks you, he's filling in, he's the only Greek, he's the only Gentile, the only Goyim. He's the only one that would have a ham omelet as he's writing his gospel. And he is writing and he's telling you, look what he says here in 29. By the way, pause a moment. If we were in Jerusalem right now, this would be very much where we're located. And for those of you online, you just have to go to Jerusalem. But if, if you were here on the Mount of Olives, looking down maybe to like to Balboa Park or over to the Getty Center is about how far away the city is. So he's writing down, verse 29. When he had come near Bethage, on Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying it? Just say, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he told them. As they were untying the colt, the owner asked them, Why are you untying my colt? They said, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus. After throwing their coats on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And he rode along. People kept spreading their cloaks on the ground. As he was now approaching the path down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent... The stones would cry out. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. Now, I love this. We don't know whether the owner of this colt, if Jesus had said, I will need it sometime, or if it's a total stranger. But this would be similar to if I told you, uh, I want you to go over to Dodger Stadium, and there's a new BMW in the parking lot, and the keys are in it. And I want you to get it and bring it here. And so if you went and you did that and you started to start it up and the owner said, hey, what are you doing? And you said, Jesus needs it. <laughs> Let's try that this afternoon, shall we? <laughs> well, what's great about this man, whoever's, we have no idea, but for all these centuries, he's been a man that's overlooked and yet really appreciated. Why? Jesus has walked his whole life. He's never ridden everything. Why now? And by the way, about the power of who he is. Donkeys, if you've ever been on them before, are tough enough. Young donkeys that have never been ridden, that he can just sit on it and this thing goes along because the beast recognizes the creator himself. And so the man says, you can have it. By the way, the man got his donkey back. Disciples didn't sell it. The sense of stewardship. I wish someone could really show me in the Bible somewhere where it says... 10% is too much money to give back to the Lord. I've been looking for years. In fact, they go, well, that's Old Testament. I'm New Testament. You don't want to go there. You know what they do in the New Testament? You remember what he says? Zacchaeus says, if I've defrauded anybody, I'll pay him back fourfold and half of everything I owe, I'll give away. What about the apostles? They liquidate all their assets. You don't want to go to the New Testament. You want to be an Old Testament person. But the sense of stewardship, you get it back? God doesn't need your donkey. He made donkeys. God wants your heart and mine. And as I'm telling you, as you set aside time, and those of you that are, are here this morning, and this is very much I should be preaching to the choir, as you people would help out, um, that, that the sense of, of giving, but thank you for that. And it's not just for the work of what ministries and Christ work around the world. It's for our hearts that he does that. And so he goes and he comes riding in and the Pharisees say, because he's riding up to Jerusalem, 
Nathan, you tell your disciples to shut up. He said, if I told them to be still, the rocks would cry out. They don't get it yet that the Son of God, the Creator Himself, is coming. And that even if broken, fallen humanity misses it, the creation wouldn't. And they miss, they misrecognize, they don't realize who comes riding up. And as he is writing down, look what he said, verse 41. It'd be like if you were riding into the valley, and, and I, I weep when I ride down into the valley, likewise. But he's looking over the city, look what he says. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will set ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. In the year 70 AD, Titus and the 10th legion will come and they will lay siege to Jerusalem as Israel rebels one more time. They overthrew the Greeks. They're not going to do that with the Romans. And not only do they lay siege to it for a year and a half to two years, where half of the city, all the population fled in behind those great walls for safety. Half died of starvation and disease. The other half lived off of cannibalism. Until they came in and they so destroyed this city, they set fire to it. And you know, limestone at hot enough heat will burn. Because it's, you know, from shells. And now he has the temple and then the gold and the Holy of Holies melts and they will literally, the Romans, pry it apart to get at it. Jesus in Matthew says, Oh, I would have gathered you as a mother hen as he weeps, but you would not. When you look at this city and your office and your friends that you live with or the people on the 405, do you weep over them and saying, Oh, if only the loneliness you have and the peace that you want, and the good life that you're so desperately trying to party your way to, or hoard enough gold and silver. It's available. And rather than be angry at them, weep for them. And that's what Jesus is doing. Only twice it's recorded he weeps. One at Lazarus' tomb, and this time it comes in. And what's fascinating to me is, is Jesus comes in, they just, he was talking to them on the tenth day of Nisan when they come for the Passover. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said Jerusalem swore from 50 to 75,000 to over 2 million people. Because it was commanded they come and the slaughtering for this holy of holy days. As our Jewish friends, as they kept the Passover and remember for that. And he was talking, but they missed, they didn't recognize him. I think I've told you before, I learn more from my friends in politics than uh, CEOs in the marketplace about the ministry. Because church land's a lot more like that, but... Remember, uh, one of my friends was telling me that Roosevelt, I guess, had kind of an ornery sense of humor. I didn't know that. And he got so tired of all these dinners and one state dinner one night. He sat there and people were coming by greeting Mr. President to go sit down. And <clears throat> Roosevelt said to them, he says, you know, nobody listens. So we know he said to him when he greeted him, I murdered my grandmother tonight. And people go, you know, that's nice. Great to be here. That's nice. That's great. And it was great until the ambassador from Spain came by and Roosevelt said, I murdered my grandmother tonight. And the ambassador said, Sir, I'm sure she deserved it. <laughs> he was actually listening. <laughs> it's not that God isn't talking. It's that we're so used to the story. And Jesus is running up this road. You realize more people are hurt and killed on familiar roads than roads you've never been on? 
You know, you got your little pattern of how you drive. You just kind of put it on autopilot. It's when you're in another city, another place, you're a little cautious. Some of us know this story so well. It's the most dangerous road we can walk on. And Jesus is coming and he is coming to them and to confront them and to tell them, let it go. Your faith is only as good as what you place it in. Hype is where you go, I believe, I believe, I believe. Faith is you go, Lord, catch me. I'm jumping in your arms. And your faith isn't what saves you. It's the object you put your faith in. A lot of us have faith in the American economy and our military, and I love this country with all my heart. But I tell you, the moment we are, our only hope is in our military and our money, aloha oi, game over. A lot of us have faith in science and medicine and technology, and praise God for the things, the times that we're alive. Is this a wild time to be alive? The moment we think we can save ourselves, we are doomed. Faith and salvation is when you stand before the Lord, And God, the Holy One, asks, what have you done to deserve to be in my glory forever? Here's the answer. I want you to memorize it. You say, I haven't done anything. You have done it all. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And that's why this vine imagery... And that's why as you're in here and as you're worshiping in the small groups... I had somebody write to me and... um, he said he was so excited about being in a small group. He was so afraid that people would be weird. And they're weirder than he thought. But he's really having fun. <laughs> and what, they're actually loving him and helping him. And that's why it's so important. You know how to make grapes grow? You don't yell at them. Come on, come on, come on, come on. You make the environment. And they just grow. Do you know how to get over these problems that we have? And the, the sin in our life and these addictions and this, our anger and our lusts and our fears? It's not, come on, come on, come on, grow. You stay attached to the vine. You say, Jesus, this one's yours. And he says, thanks. And then as you look back and you see how God has cared for us and taken care, and the courage of Jesus as he goes writing in. The Gentiles that are there will come, many of them believe in Jesus, because they will seek him. Many of the Jews, all the followers of Jesus were originally Jews. All the writers of the scripture outside of Luke are Jews. But it's those that are willing. It says even many of the priests of the temple, the book of Acts, in the high temple became followers of Jesus because they were willing to watch. But those that came on Sunday, Palm Sunday this morning, and that would cry out for his death on Friday, they missed Easter. Because God doesn't reward doubt. He rewards faith. But those that had the courage to stay and to watch, that God would transform them completely. And the remarkable thing is, he he doesn't say to ignore life, but he continues to say, you keep watching here. And there's a lot of hype out there. And people will believe hype for a while, is it not? The remarkable thing to me of being alive at this time with social networking and the internet and things, I thought people were dumb in 1980. When I read what people believe and tweet to each other, we are morons. And they buy it. I'm serious. The whole thing about, it's exactly what Gerber said, Hitler's propagandists. Say it loud enough and long enough and they'll believe it. And it's exactly what this world is doing. Say it long enough and loud enough and you and I will buy it. And Jesus comes and he says, no, no, listen to something else. And this... Living this enacted parable as he comes riding in as the king 
And they say, Hosanna, blessed is he. And those that are willing to follow him, that they will be rewarded with his life. The world's always been able to imitate God. Remember Pharaoh? Moses throws down his staff and it turns into a serpent. What do Pharaoh's magicians do? Same thing. Remember in the book of Acts, there was a woman there, a young girl possessed by a demon who could tell the future? And remember when Paul cast the demons out of her while they wanted to kill Paul because he ruined their income? Darkness can always imitate light. Except in one thing. In the real way of not trying to prove itself, but just the manifestation of the living God. It's not that the crowd was wrong that were hyped up. It's that they, it's not what they believed, it's what they rejected. They didn't stay around long enough. And this raw courage of Jesus just to come riding into this spot to be there. It's fascinating. We got time. Turn with me over to John and to the 11th chapter. It's on page 874 in your pew Bible. This is the sign that John says is why Palm Sunday this morning took place. Jewish teaching at this time believed that when you died, your spirit hovered over your body for three days. And when you started to decompose and your spirit couldn't recognize its old home anymore, then it departed to be in the bosom of Abraham to be with God. Jesus lets Lazarus be in the tomb for four days. And remember, in fact, Martha says, Lord, there will be stench. Well, look at verse 28. When he said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher here is calling for you. He, when she heard it, she got up quickly and went. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her, thinking she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping. And the Jews who came with her also weeping. He was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. Some of them said, see how he loved him. Others said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man kept this man from dying? Jesus, again, greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was against it. And he said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, he's been in, there will be a stench. He's been dead four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know you always hear me, but I say this for the sake of the crowd standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in the cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Now watch this. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told him what he had done. And the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest, said, you know nothing at all. You do not understand it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. He said this not on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was about to die for the nation. And not only for the nation only, but to gather into one the dispersed children of God. So from that day on, they planned to put him to death.
There is not enough evidence on this planet, in this cosmos, if you have your mind made up and your heart set, to have you or me to be able to turn and to believe in God. It's not an issue of the intellect. There's true questions. God always welcomes questions. He gave you a brain. He wants you to use it. But in our heart, they watched him call this dead man out and they said, we got to kill him. And I am fascinated in my life and in yours and in everybody else's life why there are some in the world that will see God move and go, wow, I trust him. And others go, nah, nah, not going to do it. And it's an issue of the heart. And so as they, Sunday will come and they'll say, blessed is he. And they're all excited. But Monday will come and Monday will go. And the Romans are still in town. The Romans were their problem. They had a political problem. There are people that needed food in their belly. The Romans, do you realize that inflation in the first century, they estimate was around 30 to 35, maybe 40%. They had a great policy. They would invade you and then charge you for the expense of conquering you. And so as they invaded Israel and they were taxing them out of existence, that was their problem. And Jesus said, no, you got a bigger problem, sin. Any of you that are out of work or any of you that are struggling with cancer or have gone through divorce or any of you that have stood by and watched a loved one be abused or are so alone and I say to you, you got a problem and I would say, and you say to Mark, you got a problem and I'd say, I got a lot of it. If you said your biggest problem is sin, we kind of go, eh. God says, no, eh. That's why my Jewish friends who don't understand when the Messiah comes, the kingdom will come and if you call this the kingdom, I want my money back. But he came one time for our big problem. He will come again, King of King and Lord of Lords, and no one is going to... And the kingdom will come. Oh, you bet. Tuesday comes and Tuesday goes and nothing has happened. Wednesday comes and Wednesday goes and nothing has changed. Thursday comes and Thursday leaves and they gather together and Judas betrays him. And on Friday they bring him to Pilate. And Pilate will say... Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus will say, do you say this on your own? Or others tell you? And Pilate goes, am I a Jew? Jesus is always pushing. What do you think? What do you think? And Pilate will go out and say, I find nothing the matter with him. Should I release to you? You have this custom. Barabbas or king of the Jews? They said, now give us Barabbas. Barabbas, by the way, was a murderer and a thief. So he took Pilate. Jesus takes Pilate. Jesus and has him beat thinking it will play on the pity of the crowd. They'll get their pound of flesh. And Jesus comes out beat by professional soldiers, the crown of thorns. This guy has been whipped bad. And Pilate will say, Ecce homo, behold the man. And the crowd goes crazy. Crucify him. Pilate didn't understand that this confirmed he was a lie. God would never let the Messiah be treated this way. Crucify him. And he said, shall I crucify your king? And he said, we have no king but Caesar. And Pilate washes his hands. But Pilate, though it's not recorded as the Roman in charge, had to give the words stigmatico. Crucify. They will take him. He who had done no wrong, no sin. And as the other two with him, two thieves, no doubt, screaming and swearing and cussing, the horrific pain. Crucifixion was to maximize the pain so you wouldn't die too soon. 
And if they were merciful, they would pull you in a way that would dislocate your shoulders so you could suffocate within a matter of days. And the other two are screaming, and Jesus is weirdly silent. Finally, as they hoist him up, and he finally speaks and he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Father, forgive us. We know what we do. And that's why as we go into this week, we go and we know that the Lord leads. Care at uh, Keenan and a, one of our teams are heading over to Africa uh, a week from tomorrow with our partner churches in the Congo. You know, five million have died. That's five Rwandas in the tribal wars that have gone place there and down in Johannesburg, our partners. And when I was over there, I remember a gentleman by the name of James King told me as a pastor who was there of one of the most remarkable conversions in his little church. There was a stepbrother and a brother together, and one was a Christian. He had this dog that he loved, and this other, he was a Christian. His stepbrother was part of the animistic beliefs of his tribe. He hated Muslims, and he hated Christians. And he kept inviting him to come with him to church, and he would never go to church. And one day, the Christian brother had a heart attack and died, like in his 40s, I think he said. And at the funeral where they buried him, the dog came along. When everybody left, that dog stayed there for a day by his master but then he would come home and the stepbrother that crazy dog watching every sunday he would get up this dog and go leave about eight in the morning and come back at two in the afternoon and where that dog was going was he was going to church and by the way you go to church in africa you go to church i was there a long time in this hard-hearted, cynical stepbrother followed this dog and he watched and that dog came in this little church and came down to the third row and sat right there. It's where his master obviously always had. And this man came in, sat down by the dog, heard the gospel and gave his life to Christ. If God can use the patterns of some African mutt to bring people to Christ. God can use the patterns of our life to bring them to Him. The patterns of when people say mean things and insult you and do you wrong and you so want to throttle them and you say, Lord, let me abide in you and you choose not to condone, not to enable, but to bless rather than curse. When your life right now makes no sense and God's taking you down a path and you think, I have no idea. I always think I know where God's going and bang, I tell you, does God answer prayer? Of course He does. But when Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall happen. What about Jack Gilbert, a member of this church for a long time this last week who died struggling with cancer? What about others when you said, Lord, I need a job so bad and it doesn't happen? I thought you said you did this. God says, I'm answering. you just watch. And this isn't a tautology, just making the answer however it turns out. But even in my little stumpy body of 57 years, looking back at my life, even at this point, I can say thank you. And there's a lot of things I can't connect the dots on, and I'll stand before them. But I think one of the things we'll say to God when we stand before Him in glory, the first thing I think we'll say when we look back and see what He did, we'll say, thank you, Heavenly Father, for not answering my prayers the way I thought I wanted. That was brilliant. And He'll say, thanks. <laughs> 
Is he leading? Is he the king of your life? Are you trying to be loving and sweet on your own? Forget it. You'll never do it. Get attached to him and let him. It's his job to grow this fruit through us. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this great joy that you loved us with a love that will never put our head or our hearts around totally. And if there are any of you in this room right now that you know the story, it's a familiar road, but you've never yet let him take over. If you've been aware of another voice besides mine, I don't want to talk you into this, so I do, but I can't. It's between you and Christ. If you've been aware of that voice saying, you need to come to me. If you're Jewish, I'm not asking you to become Gentile. I'm asking you to come to the Messiah. If you're Muslim, I'm not asking you to diss the prophet. I'm asking you to realize Jesus is more than a prophet. He is the Savior. Wherever you are, if you're just hardened to say, Lord, all right, I sense your calling. I believe when you died on that cross, you picked up the bill for all the dumb things I've ever done or ever will do forever. And I don't understand it all, but I believe you're alive. So I take all I know of me and I give it to all I know of you. Come and take over my life. And you do that. And right now, you'll start a relationship that will last forever. Thank you, Lord, for this great joy, this great peace that we can be able to share in life with you. So, God, I pray as we come before you now with our tithes and our offerings, that, Lord, for those that need food and medicine and just some clothes, for those that need the good news of Christ, Lord, bless it, multiply it. And, Lord, for the sake of us, Lord, may we learn to trust you more than what you've loaned to us. And may Jesus get all the credit and all the glory. It's for his sake and his name we pray. Amen.